especially for these Luka situations, right? I mean, there isn't a straightforward thing, just really under framing the challenge up front. Hey folks, this is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, before I get started with my guest, Fred Krawchuk, who uh, we're going to have an amazing conversation with, just let me remind you, if you haven't heard, that I rewrote my best-selling book, The Way of the Seal, added a couple new chapters, changed things up a little bit, improved it, and um, released it also in audiobook format in my voice. So that's pretty cool. So if you if you love the first or if you haven't read it, The Way of the Seal is about how to lead like an elite warrior in a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And... Um, you know, the feedback on the book has been really humbling. It's just amazing. So check it out. Go to wayoftheseal.com and you can get a free PDF workbook of all the exercises or just go ahead to Amazon and or wherever you get books and, um, and get the new edition, the fifth anniversary edition. And also look for the fifth anniversary edition at Audible, which is an Amazon company if you want the audio book. Um, the other editions are still available. So just make sure you're getting the right one. Cool. I appreciate your support for that. And furthermore, um, you're probably getting tired of me saying this, but veterans need our help. Uh, there's 22 vets on average a day committing suicide. It's really, really just an insidious problem, post-traumatic stress. Uh, the institutions are trying their best, but they're not having much you know, much luck. And so we decided to step up this year and really do something about it on our end. So we've committed to doing 22 million burpees. Definitely a, a big, hairy, audacious goal. 22 million burpees. And guess what? We're almost halfway there. We've, you know, the, t- the team that's joined me, uh, we've already got 10 million burpees in the bag and we've raised $150,000. So we've got 12 million burpees to go. I need your help to join me. I'm committed to 100,000. I do 300 a day. I slog through them and they become just an extraordinary practice for me. And uh, as soon as I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to crank out my 300. Maybe Fred will join me. We'll see. But um, go to burpeesforvets.com to either pledge for me or to join a team or to create your own team. Because we've got to do 22 million burpees this year. And then we're going to use that money to directly support vets in an immersion program to teach them the unbeatable mind, mental training tools, emotional training tools, help them find purpose, help them find you know, develop a new ethos in life. And then we're going to also um, hook them up with 18 months of coaching support with a boat crew. So that's going to be very powerful. All right, enough on that. Burpeesforvets.com. Thanks for your support. So today we have the great privilege and honor to talk to Colonel Fred Krawchuk. Cred is, uh, cred, Fred, (laughs) how do you like that? That's a strange brain that I have. Fred is a U.S. Army Special Forces officer, Green Beret, who's led uh, soldiers, you know, throughout the Army in multiple different uh, disciplines, spec ops being probably the most prominent, also infantry positions, Europe, Latin America, AOs. He was a General MacArthur Leadership Award winner at West Point. And guess what? He also went to Harvard and was uh, Olmsted Scholar in Spain. Uh, Army Senior Fellow with the State Department. Man, he's got a lot of uh, bullets on his resume. Fred is passionate about human performance, 
resiliency and how to deal with the most challenging of, of circumstances, how to get, you know, organizations and teams to break through, to find some common ground when, you know, typically there doesn't seem to be any light at the end of that tunnel. Awesome. Uh, so clearly we have a lot to talk about because we have a lot of uh, common ground. Fred, thanks for joining me today. I'm super, super stoked for the, uh, to talk to you and to, get to learn about your life. No, my pleasure. Look forward to conversation and, and hope whatever we talk about really can uh, you know, be of service to your listeners. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. First, thank you for your service. I'm, I know everyone listening uh, really appreciates vets and, and honors the you know, spec ops guys and gals who you know, put it really at the pointy edge of the spear on the line. So thank you. Appreciate that. And likewise, I appreciate all the work you're doing with uh, vet organizations and look forward to knocking out some burpees with you later on today. <laughs> look forward to that too. <laughs> 300 of them. Let's, we're going to have to get started right away after this call. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I usually begin just by um, really trying to get into, you know, what drives you and, and what were your formative kind of experiences. So you tell us a little bit about your early years, you know, influence of your parents, the influence of your community and what it is that led you to West Point and maybe that experience as well. Like what, what did you learn at West Point, you know, as a as an 18, 19, 20, 21 year old you know, kid, basically? Sure. No, I appreciate the question. I think probably one of the biggest things that happened to me as a kid that really opened up my mind and heart, really, to a bigger world outside of a, the small town I, I grew up uh, in. It was really a great example for my parents. They were working with our uh, local church. And at that time, uh, this is during uh, like the whole Pol Pot regime in Cambodia and this slew of refugees um, going to Thailand. And mm -hmm. anyway, my parents were involved in a local church project to help sponsor a family to come over. And, and, and I just, you know, sort of naturally got involved and got to know Chun, the eldest and, and all his family really. And just to hear, you know, as a, as a young, you know, a teen, young teenager hearing some really horrific stories and how this family survived and, and made it to the United States, just opened up my mind to like, oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's a bigger world outside my idyllic little community and the opportunity to, you know, be of service. And so that, this idea of service and helping out and um, just start something that's, that stayed with me, you know, throughout my life and those friendships, you know, Chun and I are still, I was just in Michigan where I grew up and one of Chun's uh, kids got married. Mm. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. But uh, yeah. I think the other piece, um, sort of related to this idea of service, another thing that had a big impact on me growing up, I think it was probably about 16 or so, and met a young army officer, John Miller, who had gone to West Point. And when I met him, you know, I really didn't have a clue about the military, but he really stood out for me here, you know, I found him to be very intelligent, you know, physically fit, confident, you know, very comfortable in his skin. Mm -hmm. And my 16-year-old mind is like, oh, I want to be like that when I grow up. Mm -hmm. And 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 then, you know, how do I do that? Well, he went to West Point, so I guess I should go to West Point, right? Uh, and so fortunately, you know, I had an opportunity to go there. Again, a bit clueless about the military, but wanting to be like this guy. And then at West Point, you know, you do these, their version of a summer internship where you, you know, you go out and you serve in the capacity of a, of a lieutenant, so to speak, and you're, 
a platoon leader and you get a, you get a chance to try that out. Right. And so here you, so I had a, went to Panama and here I am with, you know, 30, 40, you know, fit guys. And we had this mission. The mission was protect the Panama canal. And, uh, you know, I found out during that, during that summer, like, Oh, you know, this army thing, I, I think I like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, this idea of leading a group of folks, but really co-leading, right. Listening, being, bringing the best of ideas to a plan in support of a higher mission. And mm-hmm. so you're, you're thinking together, but this idea of doing things together and, and mm-hmm. but physically it wasn't just some abstract planning. It was like, and so just that this at an early age of uh, what does it mean to be with a high performing team and the responsibility in service of something bigger than me or the, the soldiers in platoon, like, Oh, this is my calling. This is a good place to be. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I love that. And I love the, uh, this notion. I, I had that same kind of sense that, you know, leadership, you know, is, is active. It's not static, right. And d- doing something, getting a mission accomplished and moving things around and, you know, create co-creating that was leadership. It wasn't, you know, a theory or a concept or a planning session, you know? Absolutely. That's cool. Absolutely. All right. So, you went through special forces training. Did you do that right after? So to give us a little bit about your career in the army, you know, how did that, how did you navigate that and, and where'd you serve and what were some of the missions you undertook? Well, sure. Well, thanks to that, you know, experience at West Point of, you know, going out and I, like I said, in Panama, I, I found that I really loved, you know, working in other cultures, you know, being overseas and, if you remember back in 89, you know, U.S. military intervention in Panama. And mm-hmm. after that, uh, there was, you know, that was Operation Just Cause. And after that, and people, you know, folks that know a little bit about military history know about that operation. But less people know about the operation afterwards, Operation Promote Liberty. And I was a scout platoon leader at the time. And basically, you know, your mission as a scout platoon was to sort of go out, do reconnaissance, check things out to help your higher level commanders uh, and command figure out what, what to do. Mm-hmm. And so I and my, my team were sent out like literally all over the country of Panama, just checking on things to make sure uh, after just cause or, you know, continued stability, were there any pockets of resistance, just trying to help get things back on track throughout the countryside. So it was really fascinating uh, missions, you know, working with, you know, indigenous tribes, you know, in the jungles and, um, you know, quite, quite an adventure. And during one of these adventures ran into a special, you know, U.S. Army Special Forces team also sort of working out in the boonies. Mm-hmm. And it sort of just dawned on me interacting and coordinating with them like, oh, you mean I could continue to work overseas uh, in sort of these austere places with a, you know, high performing team with a lot of responsibility, really a sort of bottom up approach with a lot of autonomy overseas, working with other people from different countries. That sounded, sounded great, sounded perfect. And so that was what led me to try out for special forces. And again, just love for uh, Latin America at that point in my life went back and, and did a lot of work in, in, in Latin America. To include going to uh, juggle school in 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 Brazil, which was a whole another you know whole another 
adventure of working with other people from different countries. And again, tough, tough conditions, finding that common ground in spite of cultural and language differences to, uh, you know, achieve something bigger than any of us. What was the most challenging aspect of the special forces selection and training process, the Q course? You know, I, I think what it was, was, um, sometimes navigating with like, you know, part of the training was there's setting out an individual missions and then also team missions. And I think what was really interesting, navigating the challenge sometimes on team missions with folks that were comfortable with ambiguity, like it's not super clear what we need to do here, but, you know, we'll iterate, we'll figure it out. We'll keep, you know, we'll, we'll keep pushing through this to get the job done. And other folks that were really challenged with the ambiguity and really needed sort of, you know, I got to know what the standard is. How am I going to pass selection? There's got to be a clear sort of black and white thing. Right. And so trying to bring those folks along and understand that perspective was challenging. And I think it's been a good lesson for me throughout I think leadership uh, and sort of you, you start, you earlier on, you were talking about VUCA, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous Mm -hmm. and learning at during selection that, you know what, some people are comfortable with sort of the VUCA world uh, and actually may prefer that. And other people much more prefer sort of more predictability, more stability. Not that one is better than the other, but just having an appreciation that, Oh, there are different environments, different leadership required, and how do we bring what's most appropriate to to a, a to a situation? Yeah, well said. In fact, you kind of define the difference between a a spec ops guy and a conventional, you know, warrior leader. Yeah, so the spec yeah. ops guys embrace the VUCA environment; they like it. You know, they thrive in it, whereas conventional minded people really don't. It makes them nervous. You know, they shut down a little bit. They need a little bit more predictability, but they, they can plan the hell out of things, right? They, I would never personally survive in a more conventional unit or a conventional environment, but they're, they're both necessary, like you said. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Now you've been, as a Green Beret and, and in some of the other positions you had, you know, the State Department, you've been in super high risk operations, stakes are super high, life and death, but also, you know, not just of you, but of the people that you're working with. What did you see um, in terms of the mistakes that people were made or making? And how did you help them kind of overcome obstacles? Well, I think a good example, and it actually is connected to what we were just talking about in terms of really understanding your environment and what's most appropriate. I remember, for example, when I was working in, in Iraq, I was asked to help stand up uh, an interagency task force. And for your listeners, what, what this is, is it's basically you're, you're inviting people from the State Department, intelligence agencies, people working in development, other military units, both special ops and conventional. Really, you know, who are the people working in Iraq to include connections with, obviously, Iraqi leaders who've got a, obviously a stake in what's happening and inviting them to a collaborative platform to figure out is, is there ways that we can help each other work through some difficult uh, and challenging issues. Given that in these complex, you know, VUCA environments, my experience has been 
no one agency or no one group or no one community has all of the resources, the knowledge, the relationships to really tackle these messy problems. And so we all benefit uh, by sharing perspectives, sharing resources. Mm-hmm. And so one of the th- challenges we had uh, was, uh, I remember, the central bank of Iraq literally burnt down. Mm-hmm. And part of you know our invitation from the Iraqi government was, could we help bring different stakeholders to the table to figure out how do we help get the central bank and you know work support the Iraqis to get the central bank back literally up on its feet. So you can imagine this is the literal construction of a bank. It's the database, the the information technology infrastructure. It's the safety. It's mm-hmm. the training and selection of the right people. So very complex, lots of moving parts, lots of different uh, interests in it. And as you can imagine, ones need, you know, you got to be patient and persistent in trying to help bring together the right different people from lots of different backgrounds and disciplines to try to help co-create and support the Rockies in getting the bank rebuilt. Mm-hmm. And it's not always, you know, and sometimes it is slow. But you got to be patient. You know, it takes time to build relationships. It takes time to build trust. It takes time to to get, you know, these different pieces together. And I remember one of the, the senior uh, military folks that was also involved in this, and I was helping lead, sort of lead the, at least the military side of this task force. And I remember a general coming up to me and says, hey, Fred, you guys seem to be going slow. Mm-hmm. But, but we got... You know, if you need some more resources, you need some more money, or you need me to sort of kick people in the butt, and we'll just work longer, work harder. You know, let me know. And I remember, you know, trying to be, you know, appreciative of his support and looking for ways to help get that support. But here was an instance of here's a complex, messy problem. It's not by just working harder, spending more money. It's not gonna. It's not gonna solve it. This isn't a linear engineering problem. This is unpredictable, messy, relationship building, going with the flow, it didn't require the sort of predictable engineering-like right. approach. More inputs aren't going to speed up the output. <laughs> exactly. That's fascinating. Interesting. Hey, folks. I want to tell you about a product developed by a friend of mine, Navy SEAL Dr. Kirk Parsley. It's called the Sleep Remedy. I tried it recently during my Unbeatable Minds Summit, and boy, this stuff worked. I can't say enough good things about it. I fell asleep quickly, didn't wake up feeling groggy, and uh, man, I, I was like rock and roll the next day. Doc Parsley designed this to help Navy SEAL teammates back in 2009. They had been coming to him, and they were having a huge problem with sleep. And, and this is not just SEALs and spec ops that have this problem. It's everybody <laughs> or many people, I should say, who are hyper-successful. So he concocted these things from things that are normally associated with developing, you know, or the, the chemicals that are in your brain that, that help facilitate sleep. And so he pulled them together, and now he's put it all into one you know, powder-based product. It's been hugely successful. He's been on the market now for a little while. And, you know, what he said in his talk to us was that everything is degraded when you don't sleep. Your emotions, um, your emotional balance, your decision-making, problem-solving, your impulse control, willpower, they're all degraded because these are all 
controlled by your prefrontal cortex, and it gets impaired by up to 30% with one single night of sleep where you're deprived. And then furthermore, all of your hormones, testosterone, growth hormone, and uh, they all decrease. The production of those decrease by also up to 30% with just a single night of sleep where you're deprived. And it probably could be just a limited, you know, just an hour off. Doc Parsley's sleep remedy designed to concentrate the most important nutrients that you need when you're preparing to go to sleep. It is drug-free. It's a nutritional supplement. And thousands of people, like I said, have tried it. First responders, Navy SEALs, athletes, CEOs, and they all find that it's very useful. Uh, if you're interested in trying it, there's an unlimited no questions asked money back guarantee. And you can get 10% off by entering the code Unbeatable Mind when you order it at docparsley, D-O-C-P-A-R-S-L-E-Y.com. So enter Unbeatable Mind in the coupon code box at docparsley.com. I recommend you check it out. Yeah. So you developed this expertise, you know, getting your hands dirty. You know, this, this story of you know, helping rebuild a rec central bank being one. Murky environment, lots of stakeholders. Uh, and I'm going to introduce a little uh, theory here, but everyone's at a different kind of level of understanding world concept, also different, you know, different needs and um, motivators. I mean, it's, the complexity is even, you know, it's just hard to even imagine like how you would bring that all together. So how did you start to make sense of all this? And I want to kind of point toward, you know, negotiation tactics, communication strategy, and like spiral dynamics, because those have helped me really help, help me understand, you know, how to make sense of just the mind numbing complexity of a, of a large project like that and, and that has stakeholders from different levels of development from different cultural backgrounds different languages and some of them some of them aren't maybe the most trustworthy in the world or you don't know you know so exactly yeah how did you start to make sense of all this did you reach out to like study different um negotiation strategies and tools or or were you you know given some tools that the state department or the uh, special forces were already using or it was a combination of both yeah, I feel really fortunate. Uh, when I was doing graduate school at Harvard, I had the chance to to do the negotiations program, mm -hmm. and my instructor at the time uh, was Sheila Heen. I know, yeah. And, she, yeah. and she's done. She's written some amazing books. We're still in touch. As a matter of fact, she when I was teaching in business school in Spain, she came out mm -hmm. and uh, and helped us. Um, so I really, I think, taking the negotiation course for her was had a huge impact um, in terms of giving me a very practical framework. And what was her kind of top line framework? Like what were the key things that she was promoting? You know, I think part of it was, was really spending the time to really spend the time early on asking lots of questions and really listening and doing the best not to try to judge uh, or try to fit things into your, what, what you think is the best outcome. Mm -hmm. So asking a lot of questions, trying to get underneath, what people are saying and really trying to understand what do they really care about here? What's, what's underneath what might be to really understand their, their, their real needs here. What's, what are they really looking for? So really being curious, asking good questions before jumping into let's do this, let's do that. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's, 
Uh, and I know you've written about it, but for me, it, it, you can connect that to John Boyd mm. OODA loop, right? This idea of really spending the time of observing mm. and orienting before making any decisions or taking any action. Mm. So that, that really, to really try to find out what's the possibility here of, of finding some common ground. Right. I like that. I- iterating your way to a whole solution, right? Exactly. As opposed to Im- imposing your will on someone or having an incomplete, you know, idea of what, what the outcomes could be. And I, I love that idea of not really, you know, having a vision for an acceptable or, or an acceptable range of outcomes as opposed to a specific target that you're shooting. Oh, for, absolutely. You know? And there's a great uh, quote from Albert Einstein. I sometimes use if I'm teaching a course on these kinds of things. And he says, um, if I had one hour to solve a problem and my life depended on it, I would use the first 55 minutes determining the proper questions to ask. <laughs> right. So, so it's really, especially yeah. for these VUCA situations, right? I mean, there isn't right. the straightforward thing, just really under framing the challenge up front. Um, right. Now, one of the things that's influenced me dramatically in my life, and I use it as a framework for the Unbeatable Mind program, is Ken Wilber's integral theory. And as you're aware, he was heavily influenced by the spiral dynamics and um, transpersonal, you know, psychology and developmental developmental psychology and all that. Yes. So it looks like you you came upon this. How did you stumble upon spiral dynamics, and how is that model uh, a stage theory of personal or institutional development? How has that impacted your your leadership and your strategy, strategic, you know, negotiating skills? Sure. No, I, I think it has a significant impact. And I really um, have had a chance to get to know Don Beck over the years and nice. have a lot of gratitude uh, for his work. And so for me, if you know, it's the negotiations framework is really helpful. But then as you well know, there's such nuances uh, in these complex situations. And so I think what uh, Spiral Dynamics did for me was really help understand and again, appreciate that, you know what, different groups are coming at us at at these challenges from very different perspectives, uh, very different motivations. And again, being careful about not judging, you know, having sort of this curiosity, you know, the Zen beginner's mind Right. to be really curious on what people care about. And so part of the work, for example, of, you know, like, like in Iraq, for example, you know, one of the, the questions I had for our interagency task force, was, for example, what are some of the alternatives to Al-Qaeda? You know, what are some alternatives to violence here? And who's interested in that question? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, military people were very interested in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, State Department, development people, Iraqi communities, but they had different reasons, right? You know, some people were, you know, the were just looking for stability or were looking for ways, hey, if they work with us, am I going to bolster my power here? Or mm-hmm. if, if, if they work with our group, are they, you know, so part of it was, you know, looking at people, like people were looking for, for more power. Other right. people were like appreciating the important, the emphasis we were putting on relationships. Mm-hmm. Other people were just looking to be more effective. 
And so very different motivations. And I think Spire Dynamics offers a very practical framework to help understand what's really motivating people. What, yeah. What's their center of gravity when it comes to values? And can you connect there? So you might have very different values and concerns, but what Don Beck always talks about is this idea of, is there a superordinate goal right. or overarching objective right. and what, you know, folks in the military, you know, the importance of a shared purpose, mm-hmm. a clear shared mission. Right. And so getting that really clear and finding if people are, 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 are signing up for that, I found it very, very effective, very practical. Uh, and it wasn't trying to convince other people of your concerns or why values or motivations were important or more important it was like, no, appreciating that. And what was the, 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 the common ground again, that was attractive enough to bring different people uh, right. to the table. I have like two, two questions that will help us at first is that, you know, the, I don't want to assume that all the listeners know what spiral dynamics is. So since you have such a deep, background working with it you know is there a way you can give us kind of like the you know 30 second or one minute thousand mile view of the stages and and how they play out and then the second is did you maybe answer the second first is did you use this tool just as a personal personal awareness tool or were you like laying out the diagram and saying hey this person is coming from you know from magenta and this person's coming from you know right from red or blue uh, in terms of the the stage colors, I mean, no, I mean definitely having having appreciation for those stage colors, but not but and uh, sort of applying it. But, not, but I remember not what, using it as a team tool where you're like, okay, this is what we got to do. Yes, so this tribal leader is over here, and this one's over there. That would have been too a little bit too kludgy, probably, huh? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I remember because Don Beck would ask me to come to some of his conferences to speak. And if someone gave, asked me that question, it was like, hey, how do people in the military respond when you're teaching them spiral dynamics? And I said, <laughs> no, I never taught spiral dynamics. I said, using the principles and applying it, and people found it helpful because, right. you know, it was right. when you are. So, I, you know, it's the, the sort of big picture snapshot of spiral dynamics. I think for me, if it, you know, it's one way to think about it is sort of at a very basic level. What what do people care about? You know, and, and it's at you know, uh, and, and how wide is their aperture for what what they see is important. So I, you know, you saw some tribes, for example, it was really about close to home. What do they care about? Uh, my family, my tribe, and that and that was good. That was fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had military. Uh, so you know this very close to home, family, tribe, and then other stakeholders had a different perspective. Yes, of course, tribe, families, were community was important, but also connections with uh, other stakeholders, but, you know, in terms of throughout Iraq uh, or throughout the region. So uh, what was important to them, you know, in terms of relationships, there was this wider uh, circle Mm-hmm. Uh, and at sort of at the strategic level, as we built our network over time, it was even at sometimes global, connecting with people in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. or other regional embassies because of the perspective of the concerns were wider. Not that it made them better or worse in any sense. It's just, no, it, a different 
a different perspective in terms of what was important. And I, and I think mm-hmm. it's just an appreciation of sort of, sort of a, of a local level, a regional and even strategic. And, the, you know, you could go higher and higher in terms of what's the, the, the bigger am, impact globally uh, uh, in terms of environment. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just depends on how willing and open are you to see the sort of the, the interdependence between different actors and, and the system in which you're in, in which you're working. So I think that's, you know, maybe one way to think about it. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. I mean, you're describing, you know, uh, almost kind of ego, ethno and world centric kind of stages of, of growth, but also when it comes to, it doesn't have to be a growth. It could be, you could have someone who's very ethnocentric, but in a position of, you know, power where they have to think more globally. Right. And so that's perfect. They have to be nudged, you know, out of, they're still going to have their, their kind of uh, shadow uh, ethnocentrism kind of guiding their decisions right in the background. So you have to be aware of that too. No, absolutely. It is pretty fascinating. So what else, you know, to me, one of the things that's fascinating to me in my work is this idea that, you know, in the West, we've been taught that, you know, your brain and your body are separate. As a lifetime martial artist and yoga developer, teacher and practitioner and longtime meditator, you know, I've, I've started to begin to not begin to sense, but I've had a strong sense for a long time, but now begin to fervently believe that the body is the mind, like the body, the mind, the mind goes so far beyond the brain. And we know the heart mind and the belly mind and all that. But what I've started to sense is that the way you communicate, the way you perceive the world, the way you act in the world is really body mind, right? It's all Mm -hmm. one thing. And they call that kind of the realm of somatics. And it's starting to starting to get a lot of um, credibility and a lot of the spe- um, special forces guys have been involved in really cutting edge research on that, like at the Strozzi Institute and the Trojan horse program, or, you know, the, the green berets getting involved in working with the keto, you know, up in Fort Washington or uh, Washington state mm-hmm. at uh, Fort, Hood? Fort Lewis, Fort Lewis, Fort, Fort Lewis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. So um, what's your take on the role of, you know, understanding somatics and body-mind awareness um, in negotiation and and how does that fit into your kind of model for life and leadership? No, I, it's, a wonder, it's a great question. And, and it's also one of these things that's really had a huge impact on me personally and professionally and have had a chance to share it with others. So, yeah, Richard Strozzi Heckler, who runs Strozzi Institute, um, you know, wrote this book in search of the warrior spirit, which details. I remember that details I read that years ago. Phenomenal. Yeah, and yeah. A, a buddy of mine handed it to me literally as we as I was finishing up special forces training, and I just I just fell in love with the book, uh, and I I liked it so much that you know this was pre internet days, and I you know had to figure out how to get hold of this guy, so I cold called Richard. This is like twenty five plus years ago now co-called him and say, Hey, Richard, you know, I went to West Point, just finished special forces training, loved your book. Can I come train with you? (laughs) (laughs) And I I feel very fortunate. He said, you know, he said, you know, he goes, he said, you know, people usually pay, pay me for this, but I'm sure we can work something out. And so that led me on an incredible sort of parallel journey 
in my military career of you know this this idea of appreciating the principles of aikido and embodiment mm-hmm. uh, and how does that relate to to leadership and um, mm-hmm. so this idea of you know we know from biology that when you know things get really stressed when we get stressed out uh, or really difficult things are in front of us you know we all have the the, 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 you know, the tendency of either, you know, this idea of fight or flee, uh, or do we freeze, or are there opportunities sort of to blend? And I think in a very practical way, training with Richard and, and over the years uh, really helped provide some very simple but powerful ways to help people see how are they showing up in this situation. And I would literally do this, you know, like as sort of performance performance counseling with my my team leaders for example when i was mm-hmm. a company commander it's like trying to see them uh, and we would do you know introduce like blending exercises and i would work one-on-one just to help them see how they're showing up because again would you, would, were those sorry to interrupt were, sure. were those exercises physical like you would see on an aikido mat or yeah. are they kind of like mental you know, no no we, showing I, how ideas can blend and energy can you know either be bypassed or merged and blend well i'm you know i'm i'm, I'm sure no surprise to you a big believer in experiential learning and yes. you know special ops is all about <laughs> embodiment and i think yeah. leadership in general is really about embodiment um and yeah. so yeah. no we would do simple exercises to sh- to help help, uh, help my team leaders appreciate, you know what, I'm really, when it's a tough situation, I'm willing to stand up and fight for my team. And that can Mm -hmm. be super appropriate, right? Other times, Mm -hmm. uh, but then also, can we expand our toolkit? Can we expand our responses? Because sometimes it might be better to sort of back off. It's, this isn't worth the fight here. Or do I need to learn how to coordinate? And I was very fortunate at the time we were getting ready to, we were getting our teams ready to go do work in the Balkans. And I had a very proficient martial artist who was a team leader. And so we were, we worked together, sort of bringing these somatic exercises along with very practical, you know, combatives kind of training to, to do scenarios, to get people ready f- for, you know, very, different kinds of scenarios are going to run into the Balkans because you know what you may need to show up, you know, with force or you may need to show up as a negotiator or may need to show up as a community leader. What was uh, the appropriate response? And really, Mm -hmm. and when we did our sort of final validation of getting teams ready, it was really clear the teams that really sort of tried to include all these different things, how better they were, in the final validation, because we would throw very different scenarios that sometimes was, mm-hmm. sometimes you, you, you needed to point your weapon. Other times you needed to, you know, put the gun away and sit down at the table. And so I mm-hmm. found mm-hmm. it, the somatic piece to be very practical at, at a tactical level. And I would, you know, there's another exercise from the Aikido tradition called Rondori, which mm-hmm. is really you're dealing with multiple attackers. And you can do that mm-hmm. in, in the big martial sense, or you can do it low key, but still help, helping people understand how to keep their balance when things are rapidly changing around them. And I, mm-hmm. and here I am now, you know, here doing that at the tactical level with teams. And now here I am in Afghanistan at a much higher level command. 
and having on my team, you know, some military people, but also even academics and other civilians, and just noticing the the, the messiness and the fast changing environment of Afghanistan is like, how do I help this team that I'm the staff element that I'm responsible for just to, to get understand how, how to keep their balance in this you know very stressful fast moving. So even at the sort of the corporate level of the military, you know, introducing some very simple, again, embodied, not just the theory of it. How do you, how do you, how can you stay centered here and knowing your center of gravity and appreciating what does it feel like when you're off balance? How do I, what do I need to bring myself on balance and doing Mm -hmm. sort of simple examples with the team of Ron Dory of, you know, dealing with multiple uh, changes around them, but still trying to keep their ground, knowing what's important to help keep their balance. Mm-hmm. So, I love that. Yeah, it reminds me there's a wonderful story around this from uh, you know, the founder of Aikido, Morai Yoshiba. And he, in, so he's here, he is, you know, doing this training. He's sparring with a very accomplished fighter. Students are watching, and one of the students says to, uh, to the master, you know, it's like, Hey, you never lose, you never lose your balance. You know, what's your secret? And Yeshiba replies, you know, he's, no, 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 you're actually wrong. It's not that I'm not losing my balance. I'm constantly losing my balance. My skill mm-hmm. lies in my ability to regain it. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we're rigidly trying to control something. No, we're going to come off balance, but are we aware of that in ourselves, but also watching our teams, you know, what do we need to help? get them back back on track right hey folks mark here listen up i've got a secret weapon for you to make your working out and training more efficient and to get better results and faster it's called the halo sport and i love this tool simply put training with a halo sport allows you to develop your muscle memory faster the headset applies electrostimulation to your brain's motor cortex to induce a temporary state of hyper-learning. How cool is that? That means you're going to get better results faster from anything that you do where you need to learn by moving, such as your SilFit wad, martial arts training, yoga, tai chi, or even running. Now, I interviewed Halo's CEO, Dr. Daniel Chow, a while back, and I was really impressed by his team and this underlying technology, the science of transcranial direct current stimulation or TDCS, which has over 15 years of scientific and military research behind it. I now personally use Halo Sport for many of my high intensity wads and when I do my Tai Chi training where I'm trying to learn some new form. When I train my movements with the Halo Sport, I do learn faster and I get more precision and I feel I can perform more aggressively. Halo Sport's already being used extensively in the military special operations communities. And from my SEAL friends, I've heard that they get great results. It's also used by many pro athletes, Olympians, and thousands of lifelong athletes just like you and I. So in my mind, Halo Sport is the ideal training tool for those like you who want to exceed your training goals. To learn more about the Halo Sport, go to haloneuro.com. That's H-A-L-O. N-E-U-R-O.com. And you can use the code Unbeatable Mind, all one word, Unbeatable Mind at checkout to get this awesome product for $475 
which is $275 off of the retail price. Again, haloneuro.com. Use the code Unbeatable Mind. You won't be disappointed. This is a great tool. All right, let's get back to the show. Hoo ya. One of the things that you know I want the listeners to really appreciate is, you know, you and I have studied this stuff for years. I, I studied Aikido for a year and then ninjutsu, which included Aki Jujitsu and all these concepts, you know, start to become, you know, imbued or kind of like embodied. But for a leader today, you don't have to, you know, join yet another martial arts studio or, or any studio for that matter. You can learn these principles in simple kind of drills and, you know, contextualize them for leading, which the martial arts teacher isn't necessarily going to do. That's why I love what Strozzi's up to, Strozzi Institute. And also, you know, we do that with our unbuilt mind. We have uh, spot drills, which kind of demonstrate different awareness levels and demonstrate how you can, you know, um, tap into energy of yourself and the, and your teammates to kind of get a feel for whether they're friend or foe or, you know, where they're at. So is that ring true to you that, you know, you can learn these principles with some simple drills that can be practiced either daily or, you know, episodically? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, just, uh, very recently, within the last week or two, I was in Spain teaching a business executive, uh, ed- you know, business executive education course at ESA, IESE Business School, which is not mm-hmm. as well known in the States, but like Financial Times rates it, is rated at the last couple of years like the top executive education program for business folks. So, well regarded, really sound program. And I had the opportunity to uh, co design a new course around adaptive leadership, how to build adaptive organizations. And, I, and, and what we're talking about, I think, is so fundamental and can be so helpful. So, I included as a daily practice, uh, you know, we'd start off the day doing very simple, but as you know, very effective sort of like breathing exercises or some very simple awareness just to help people understand. You know, that there were very simple, very simple but powerful techniques to help them appreciate when they were off balance and what they could do to help calm themselves down and make it very practical. You know, why would you do box breathing, for example? Well, if you're getting ready for a difficult conversation with someone or you're getting ready to give a briefing or run an important meeting, what are some ways so that you might be able to just feel more centered, feel more grounded, feel more confident? It doesn't have to be really complicated kinds of things. So simple, simple movement. And we would do very simple things with partners. Like what is it, you know, what does it mean to, you've got something, you want to take a stand or you got a new initiative. What does it feel to be resisted? And how, and are you comfortable resisting things? Because so sometimes we know we need to say no. Uh, and some people are more comfortable with that or not. Or here's someone coming at you with a, with a request or, you know, is it most appropriate to respond now? Or do, is this something where, you know what, I need to disengage? Or is this right. an opportunity? And so, yeah, I think there's, uh, and, and we would do this, not we would talk about it, but, you know, working in partners, simple movement, simple breathing exercises, again, to get people the sense that in their bodies that this is something real and something 
and I remember sharing with the group last week, it's like, like in the military, you might be on a patrol, for example, and you're really using all of your senses, right? Uh, to pay attention, to be sensitive to the environment. And doing that over time, you build this intuition. And so it's in the business context, well, you have all these senses available and it's giving you great information. So why not tap into it? And here are some simple ways to do that. So yeah, absolutely uh, agree with you that there's some really simple and yet very powerful things you can put into practice that are can be incredibly valuable, especially in, you know, in a VUCA situation. Absolutely. We um, coming kind of to the end of our timeline here, but I wanted to um, talk about trust because that's such a big issue, you know, in, in teams and as a leader, you know, you first have to be trustworthy in order to expect, you know, you're going to have trust, you know, like someone else, but also, you know, you have to be vulnerable and, and open to trusting someone, but verify, of course, that what they say is, has some veracity to it. So how do you, you know, what do you think about developing trust in a leader? Like, how do, how do you approach that? I'm really glad we're uh, sort of go, going towards closing because uh, I think it's, it's such an important issue. And I think that's been, to be upfront, I think that's been one of my interesting learning edges having transitioned out of a world where trust and dependability was so important and in some ways really appreciating it, taking it for granted mm-hmm. and that not always seeing that in other projects and other, other domains. Oh, and um, so I think, you know, in the military, we talk about this idea of, I, you know, I've got your back, you can depend on me mm-hmm. and how critical that that is. And, it's not always necessarily whether you like someone or you get along. As a matter of fact, I remember working in Afghanistan and what I, you know, one of my colleagues and I, we didn't necessarily get along, didn't necessarily like each other. We didn't hang out, but we both had, you know, important tasks and functions. And if one of us had to travel to a different part of the country or whatever, we had to be able to cover down on each other and take care of each other, take care of our concerns in support of a, a shared mission. And there was never any, any doubt that we could not depend on each other, even though we didn't necessarily like each other. And, and so I think this, uh, this piece, you know, and, and to make it really concrete of, you know, can, do I honor my words with my actions? Can people count on me? Uh, as a matter of fact, we had this discussion last week with uh, this group of business executives. And I remember asking the question mm-hmm. of like, who do, you, who do you depend on? And really getting clear about that, because I think we depend on more people and systems than we might realize, and being clear who's really depending on me. And, 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 and when we do something, you know, we make a mistake, we break trust, or we're not as dependable, you know, do we go back and try to make the repair, make the amends, fix things, get, get back on track? And, you know, there's been really interesting research around this, you know, integrity trust that that's really such a critical part of performance. Uh, and if there isn't that trust, there isn't this lack of dependability that teams are actually much less effective. And I, I don't know if you had a chance, I'm sure you have, I think Sebastian Younger and his mm-hmm. one of his latest books, Tribe, talks about this mm-hmm. importance of trust and dependability and, you know, a healthy tribe uh, and how... I, I think that's really 
you know, Stan McChrystal talks about this in his book, Team of Teams. But I think this mm-hmm. is an ethos shared throughout much of the military, especially in the special operations world. You know, if, if, if you got this shared sense of purpose that people are really, they got skin in the game, you know, people are competent in their roles and, and there is a sense of trust and, and how to build that trust. I think those are just so, so, so critical. And I've noticed on some projects post-military, oh, this is a great mission, a really cool project, really competent people. But if that trust piece is missing or that's not an explicit part of the conversation or clear expectations about what do we mean about trust and how are we going to build it? And mm-hmm. I'm just appreciating more and more how important I would say just that's absolutely great. critical that is. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, trustworthiness and, and trust bond um, expose themselves pretty quickly when you embark on any, you know, worthy mission or project. But how would, how would we, or how would the listener, A, be aware whether they're not trustworthy <laughs> and that self-awareness of that gap uh, would then lead to wanting to close that gap. And so that leads to the B is what can they do to close the gap? What can they do to train trustworthiness or develop trustworthiness? So I can hearken back to my West Point days, you know, as a, as a young cadet, you had to memorize things and some things you thought, you thought were silly, but other things that have stayed with you over time. And there's a great quote from uh, General MacArthur, and it's around this notion of duty, honor, and country. And, you know, and he said in a speech to uh, at West Point, and he says, duty, honor, country, those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, what you will be. They are your rallying points mm. to build courage when courage seems to fail, to regain faith when there's when there seems to be little cause for faith to create hope when hope becomes forlorn. And so to think about duty, like, you know, am I clear about what's really important to me? What's important to my family? You know, what are the responsibilities that I take seriously? Again, this idea who's depending on me and, and do I take those obligations seriously or not? Uh, and to me, there's in that is like a sense of care. Do I genuinely care about the folks around me? Am I taking visible, clear actions to take care of folks, to really take care of the, of, of, you know, again, it's not abstract, it's, it's action oriented. And then honor, what does that mean to me? Is, is trust, building trust important? Am I having explicit conversations with the people I work with about how, how are we going to do this? So it's not abstract, uh, it's not, you know, philosophical conversation. And, and having that openness, like, hey, if things aren't clear or if you feel I'm not, you know, giving people the opportunity to give you feedback, which isn't always easy, but can people come talk to you and are you making those efforts and not just waiting for people to come to the door, but going out and asking people, you know, so duty, honor, country and whether, you know, country, what is that higher purpose and is it clear, you know, whether it's your organizational mission, your team mission, your community mission, whatever it is, is there something bigger than you or I that we're signed up for that would there's skin in the game here? And are we, are we clear about that? And and I just, I think having explicit conversations uh, about that, and then also talking with each other, like, okay, when we make mistakes, uh, or we feel like trust, or we're not honoring our words with our actions, how do we how do we clean up the mess and, 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 and giving people opportunity to do that? I, again, I think it's, these are things I would 
recommend folks to consider. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And we're kind of pointing back toward that uh, aligning narrative, you know, that um, Crystal talks about having the daily conversation about those values and about trust and about, you know, the mission and what the outcomes are. And, and, and also, in a sense, the brief and the debrief, you know, if, if there's behavior that wasn't in alignment with that narrative, then, you, you know, to have the capacity to call people out in a way that is going to help them improve. No, exactly. And, and that yeah, it's not so. personal. It's in support of the bigger mission. Right. And, and, and that we all Correct. care about each other. We don't want to let each other down and we don't want to let down the mission. So how, how can I improve? And, and creating that environment where people, it's like people look forward, you know, to that debrief. And, and it's not about blame or it's not about, no, it's about being on this path of mastery, being on this path of growth, being on this path of service, right? In, in, in support of a, something bigger than you and I. Hoo-yah. Well said. And uh, we'll, we'll call it a wrap there. There's not much more to say uh, on that subject at this point in time, since we, um, anything we do say will take us down another 30 minute <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> it's been an honor to talk to you, Fred. I really appreciate your time. I look forward to meeting you in person someday and maybe doing some training together or learning from you. And um, no, likewise, it's been, a, it's been a great conversation and I do look forward to seeing you on the path. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks again. All right, folks, that was Fred Kochuk, and what an unbelievable conversation. Holy cow. Thanks so much, Fred. I am super stoked that we had that conversation. It's really, really important to consider this idea of, of trust and also understanding different you know, points of view and stages of development, all this stuff we cover in the Unbeal Mind program, and also embodied leadership. That's going to be a big part of some of the discussions and my thought and research in the future is how do we really embody leadership and look at our body as a brain and our uh, whole mind, right? At a fifth plateau. And if you don't know what I'm talking about there, then check out Unbeatable Mind uh, Online Academy uh, or my book, Unbeatable Mind or The Way of the Seal, where I start to get into those concepts. And we're going to continue to explore more and more as, the, um, as time goes on here. Anyways, having said all that, thanks again for listening to Unbeal Mind Podcast. I appreciate you're on the journey with me. It's super cool to, um, to have such great support and great people like you to, um, who are really caring about developing themselves, unlocking their 20x potential, uh, serving powerfully from a world-centric point of view, and making a difference in the world. Couldn't do it without you. Thanks again. Hoo-yah. Divine out. Boys, time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UTT. Oh, oh, oh.